house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Donovan about five years ago. It was rather foolish of me to think he would answer, but he did. Now I'm only 11 years old, but later I'll be like him, and we'll act in movies together. Rupert, you made up that story. I didn't! You lied, and you lied for years. I just didn't say anything! Did you, or did you not, write letters to that kid? Do you have a pen pal? Child pen pal, do your job. Next. You are never to write to that man again. Do you understand? Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast confrontationally spreading our legs for Richard Dreyfus. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my favorite pen pal, Chris File. Hello, Chris. I'm writing a letter to you from Room. <laughs> oh no oh i hope things are going okay in room i've heard good things <laughs> lost my melted spoon oh i've the the um the airbnb reviews on room are really good actually surprisingly <laughs> uh i i don't know what to say about airbnb reviews for room um i feel like back in the day when like Single service tumblers were a thing. I talk about this a lot. It's a weirdly formative time in my internet, whatever. Um, that like Yelp reviews of uh, or Airbnb reviews of room would have been like a thing. Would have been like a blog. Somebody yeah, created. it would have been like uh, photos accurately represent uh, Airbnb more spacious than expected. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. Cozy. Cozy. Cute. Um, secure. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, room. Yeah, Second room. bedroom in wardrobe smaller than expected. Room is one of the handful of movies that you can absolutely tell that, like, played at TIFF as Xavier Dolan was casting the life and or the death and life of John F. Donovan. Sure, sure. That sure, like sure. absolutely just like went from like A to B in terms of casting. And oh, Jacob Tremblay. Well, you know, he was in this movie. Poor Jacob Tremblay did not get to be in a Star Wars movie like he wanted, but he did get to be in a movie that uh, took forever to arrive and then kind of never did. Um, yeah. So this yeah, movie was shot into a galaxy far, far away, never to be seen again. <laughs> yeah, we, I, I do feel like I, I, I'm something of an emissary with, uh, with this movie because I do feel like even with our audience who are like plugged into this kind of thing intensely i really don't feel like a lot of people have seen this movie because i feel like more people would talk about it if they had i i mean like i was very eager to see it at the tiff that we saw it at where even like when it so you did see it there they i did okay um i even reviewed it too um amazing yeah i i didn't it, it was on my it like so it was weird. on my long list of like 
I'd like to see that movie because even by then, because um, It's Only the End of the World had been so poorly reviewed and because there was a lot of like sort of dubious snark around the development of this movie. It was the four hour Mm -hmm. cut. It was cut down. Jessica Chastain was there and then she wasn't. There were those character posters that everybody kind of laughed at and the publicity photos. You texted me just before we started this. You terrorized me with that shot of Natalie Portman and Jacob Tremblay and the publicity photo. I will never let that go off of my photo reel i love that publicity (laughs) photo of the two of them i don't even know what it is about it because it's not like it's any like trombley does look a little bit like an alien child but like that's sort of his vibe like that's he works that vibe and he winks at work what it what kind like you kind that photo why i love it so much i view it in context of it is shocking that they did even that level of publicity for the movie. And there's yeah. something about both of their facial expressions that they're like, I guess we're doing this, man. Like, <laughs> we're here. We're putting on a nice face for this movie, which, like, I guess we should kind of, like, before we get into it, we should say the timeline of this movie. Right. So it's like, I think... I forget when the cast was announced, but, like, for Xavier Dolan, who does, like, Canadian art films that, like, have... It, the, the, we'll talk about the goodwill dwindling for Xavier Dolan um, further into the episode, but, like, massive stars for this movie. Like, Natalie Portman, right. Jessica Chastain, This was him ca- if we Bates. Yeah. If we want to talk about this in sort of the parlance of uh, our... our uh, favored uh, podcast blank check this is xavier dolan cashing in right this is him cashing oh, yeah, in on like the acclaim that he had been building up and it sort of crested with mommy and now i think with mommy uh, was the canadian oscar submission didn't get nominated should have like, one of the best movies of that cast year. like this immediately it has a perception of oh this is going to be like the major arrival because he's getting whatever the script would have been he's getting these major stars that like obviously are swayed by something in whatever this project is going to be so it's like (laughs) also when we talk about like our relationship to like this movie and like the purposes of this podcast it's full we should be saying that it's fully like year out predictions that it's like oh this could be an oscar movie oh absolutely well once once this thing started getting cast once this thing started getting cast on the on the heels of how great mommy was and that mommy Mm -hmm. did win you know won a prize at Cannes and was you know should have been an oscar nominee for a foreign language film that year but it just wasn't so like there was every reason to imagine that Dolan would continue sort of like trending upwards, right? Mm-hmm. And with uh, It's Only the End of the World and John F. Donovan seemed like they were both in production at the same time. I don't know what exactly the production no, timelines are. No, this is the timeline for the movie because like It's Only the End of the World, I definitely think kind of soiled this movie's reputation quickly before like even the the post-production situation for death and life of john f donovan okay so movies announced he goes to Cannes with it's only the end of the world which itself is like a huge uh like french cast of like marion cotillard leia Do of right that was also a leveling up for him right where that was when he was starting to cast like these big european stars 
immediately the movie out of can gets these like toxic reviews where it's right. like he gets ripped over the coals and like he starts having open arguments with uh certain american critics and then the movie wins the grand prix which is second place at can and apparently jury member uh donald sutherland and fellow canadian uh had uh, a hand in like really pushing for that movie to get a major prize <laughs> during the award ceremonies zavia delon has like this very emotional extended acceptance speech where he's going on for several minutes which it's like everybody kind of shit on him for like having this indulgent speech which is like you if you look at it on a human level you can understand someone being emotional about like winning a prize like that yeah totally <laughs> but cut to the shadiest and funniest jump cut i have ever seen in cinema on television at an award ceremony ever they cut to a deadpan Mads Mikkelsen and instantly it becomes like a meme during uh through like film Twitter circles and like uh critic circles and that on Twitter to where it's like you just show a picture that picture of Mads Mikkelsen looking very askance at Xavier Delon sobbing it's one of those reactions that like more likely than not Mads Mikkelsen was like paring down his grocery order in his head or like wondering if he returned that phone call that he needs to return or like one of those things that's innocuous but we put our own feelings uh, onto it exactly Um, but i think i think you're right the fact that like the intentionality of the cut to it is almost shady the real yeah that's the real intention there yeah um and like there was already some like among the snobs building uh resentment towards Xavier Delon because he I won the so. jury prize for Mommy at Cannes, but he tied with Godard, which a lot of people <laughs> Okay, but he tied with Godard at. for Goodbye to Language, which like I know a lot of people really loved that, but also it's not like he's, you know, I don't know. I thought that was that to me was a little bit of some gatekeeping action going on where it's just like this 20 something French Canadian child. Oh, absolutely. It's like isn't allowed to be in that and say, how dare they place him alongside Godard? Yeah. I don't know. Easily, uh, Savio Delon's best movie and like the movie that we hope that he will keep making something at the level of. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, we'll get into the actual merits of Death and Life of Jonathan Donovan for sure. Um, and I <laughs> ha- still have not seen It's Only the End of the World, so I can't speak to... I have. I think the- people are way overblown in hating that movie. Interesting. So I think this it's is a what I. ridiculous. This is sort of how I feel about Xavier Dolan as a whole, is that, and I, I mean, not to like get into a whole thing that I sort of got into with Ryan Murphy a couple weeks ago, but like... We're so not overly harsh, but like there's so much going on in the way that like the queer community reacts to artists like Xavier Dolan. And there's just absolutely no leeway for fuck ups, right? Where all of a sudden it's just like there's almost a sense of embarrassment that we like put it put all our chips in on this guy and then all of a sudden he's coming out with something that 
does not reflect well on him or anybody who likes him. And it feels like you've got to like make that like whiplash turn on him to like turning him almost into this like meme of uh, object of derision. And I don't know, it feels, it feels like eating our own in a way that I don't love. And I think it happens a lot. I don't think he's done himself any favors. He sure has not. Of uh, how he like openly responds to his criticisms in a way that's incredibly defensive. Yeah, um, he's a brat. He's an absolute. That's why our little tease to this was the the Canadian baby. Uh, when we teased our episodes on Twitter uh, for the coming month, I said, "Well, let's have a Canadian baby because he's a brat. He's a, he's you know that's his reputation." And, and I mean, it. like. It, it it also like pulls into question like he's made actually a lot of movies. Not all of them have made it safely to the states. Like this didn't even drop onto uh, VOD until well over a year of right after it premiered at Cannes here it, in the states and or not Cannes uh, at Toronto Tampa, obviously yeah. because this went through two he. F- to loop back to like the timeline of this movie, he starts shooting this movie like a month, a month and a half after winning at Cannes for "It's Only the End of the World." So it's like, right? I want to clarify though. Immediately started. Yes, I want to clarify though that when I said that both of these were in production at the same time, I think what I meant to say was they were both had already both been announced. Like there was a time when both of them were sort of in the in the spyglass for. Xavier Dolan, right? Where yeah. like we were looking yeah. forward to both of them, and ni- nobody had seen either one of them. John F. Donovan was still in the like casting phase, and it's only the end of the world was still in production. And I think both of those on the horizon. Sometimes you get this sense of, oh well, if you know, look at this bounty of really exciting work coming from this one artist. Clearly, something's going to hit, like the law of averages. And as I've said before in this podcast, that's almost. The opposite is is almost more often true with that, right? Where it's just like the law of averages doesn't work that way with films like this. It's just like just because an actor has three buzzy looking movies coming in the coming year doesn't mean that he's like bound to hit for one of them. Like right, that's just not right. how it works. I don't know. But you're right that there is kind of a blurring together of these two projects, at least when uh, like it's only the end of the world was the laughing stock. But then this movie has, like, two full years of Cannes Film Festivals where it's rumored to possibly show up. Right. And then it doesn't. And when they book it at TIFF, like, it got announced when they announced the rest of the Canadian films. And they, like, even, like, sandwiched, slid it in, uh, like, quietly, yes. <laughs> basically. And it, well, and it the other thing really is... was, like, unceremoniously premiered. Like those character posters that I talked about, where like there, there's what eight of them. It's Portman, Tremblay, Kit Harrington, everyone, Kathy Bates, Susan Sarandon, Tandy Newton, uh, and then Jessica Chastain gets one of them, of course. And that was months before. I'm pretty sure it was months before we found out that Jessica Chastain had been cut from that movie. And that was mm-hmm. still a good number of weeks before it premiered 
at TIFF, I'm pretty sure. So, like, because by the time it appeared at TIFF, we knew that she was cut from that, and there had already been all these rumors of, you know, how long the cut was and how it's got to be cut down. So, like, those, that promotion for the movie had started a long time before. Like, there was a long while of us sort of being on the hook for this movie. And, yeah, by the time it premiered, it was already... It had seemingly, seemingly had already sort of gone through the churn of film Twitter, gay film Twitter, all of this stuff, that by the time it premiered at TIFF, its only option was to be so shockingly better than what we thought it was going to be, that it would, like, that was the only story that was left to it, was this movie that we all thought was going to be crap is actually good, and it wasn't. And so, mm-hmm. there was... I mean, no real critics... I feel like if they saw the movie there in TIFF, like everyone was real quiet about it. Hardly anybody did. I saw it with a friend and former guest, Nathaniel Rogers, seated next to me, and he hated it even more than I did. But like, it wasn't a full press screening. Um, And like, I just remember nobody prioritizing it. No. And I think it was also one of those ones that like screened late in the week that year. Yeah. They, They buried it when most of the press is gone. Right. So, before we get into it, I'll say there are moments in this movie I liked. I don't like this movie. I don't think it's a good movie. I think it's fatally flawed in several ways that we'll get into. A million ways. I think there are moments in this movie that work that make me feel like... Not that this could have been a better movie, because I think one of the fatal flaws of this movie is, like, why are we telling this story? Mm-hmm. Um it's but, pretty shallow, too. But, like, there are a couple scenes with a couple performers I think are interesting. And there are, like, there are moments where I see the glimpses of the Xavier Dolan that I really love, which are that sort of unabashed sincerity, I guess, is sort of what I'm, which is sort of a funny word it's to think MTV about for somebody. It's sincerity. And right. Like, I have a theory that about this that we'll get into later. But I, okay, it's interesting to hear you say that. I thought you would hate it maybe more than I do. Watching it again, first of all, how dare you make me watch this movie again after I'd already <laughs> seen it. Um, but also... My feeling is those moments that work kind of tell me that the longer version of the movie that can kind of flesh out some of these threads that it has, like, it fully does not develop half of its themes in this movie. No. But the longer version of the movie that really can, like, develop these character relationships, like make it clear what the movie is trying to be about right is probably the better movie well the funny thing about watching this movie is it doesn't immediately come across like a four-hour movie that's been cut down to two hours because it doesn't disagree well let me let me explain that because i think in a way that sometimes you expect that a long movie that's been cut down to two hours, it feels like all of the scenes feel like half of a scene. And I don't think that's the case in this movie. There are very long scenes in this movie. You just are getting half of the long scenes that you are probably going to get. And I think it feels like big portions of the story were taken away, but none Mm -hmm. of it feels 
frantic in terms of the editing of it. There's like they're like Kathy Bates, who's a minor character in this movie, gets like a really long monologue and certain things like that, where it's just like these scenes do go on. And if you have you ever seen the cut scene with Jessica Chastain? Like the scene. Uh, I definitely want to talk about Jessica Chastain for this because, like, I saw one that, like, a friend sent to me a few months ago and it has since been taken down off of YouTube. <laughs> um, There's definitely still like, one oh, on YouTube. This maybe could have been even worse. Yes. There's a scene on YouTube that I, she doesn't speak in, but um, where John F. Donovan. She clearly works for a tabloid. The tabloid is called yeah, Gossip. Like, it, very TMZ, Perez Hilton. She's um, like, if Tandy Newton is the like open-minded journalist in this movie, then like Jessica Chastain is the evil tabloid journalist. She's got like yeah, 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 yeah. insane red hair, like Sydney Bristow in the pilot of Alias Red Hair. Like all of the manic panic in the universe went into this hair. And she's at the like head like, of the table. Alligator print blouse. Right. She's at the head of the table in this conference room that, like, John F. Donovan sort of, like, storms. And the whole thing is filmed in slow motion. And she's got this, like, wickedly sort of, like, evil look in her eye. And she's sort of, like, resting her face on her, like, fingernail tips and whatnot. And he, like, pulls out a baseball bat out of his bag and, like, smashes the table. And then the next scene that's also on this uh, cut scene that I saw is him walking on the street and seeing the cover of the magazine after he gets, like, dragged out of the building by security, the cover of this magazine is just, like, the real truth behind John F. Donovan or whatever. And his reaction to this magazine cover takes a full, like, four minutes. It just goes on <laughs> forever. And you're just like, oh, okay, that's how this movie made it to four hours, is every single scene took, like, ten minutes. And sometimes in a movie that's, you know, long takes are good, long scenes are good, we don't want something to seem too overly frenetic, but, like, that's sort of what I mean by that it doesn't feel like that the finished product still feels long and languorous and, you know, all these scenes are going on for, like, a year and a day, and I don't know. I feel like to explain how... I think maybe the longer version is better or makes sense or like completes any of its ideas. We have to get into the plot of the movie. Yes. So that I can explain myself. All right. All right. So let's get to the other side of that. We're going to be talking about the death and life of John F. Donovan, the technically 2019 film, although it premiered in 2018 uh, at the Toronto film festival directed by, Xavier Dolan, written by Xavier Dolan and Jacob Tierney, starring Kit Harrington, Natalie Portman, Jacob Tremblay, Tandy Newton, Susan Sarandon, Kathy Bates, Chris Zilka, Ben Schnetzer, Emily Hampshire. Uh, uh, this had Oscar buzz all-star Emily Hampshire now with her also, second. Also, this had Oscar buzz Sarah Gadden. <laughs> yes, Sarah Gadden, Michael Gambon, Amara Karan, and Jared Kiso. It did premiere at the Toronto Film Festival on September 18th, 2018, premiered in the United States in a whisper of a release on December 13th, 2019. Like, dates for this movie barely matter. Like, I don't even yes. know how we're gonna log this for our spreadsheet of, like, the years we've done, because it's really in a no-man's land. I mean, I am I am a stickler for technicality, so it is a 2019 film if we're going by United States release dates, but you're right, it doesn't feel like it at all. So it would be our first Scare quotes, 2019 movie, right? With an asterisk and whatnot. The real yeah. tw- first 2019 movie that we'll we'll be doing will be the Cats episode uh, in January, right? 
Right, exactly. Plug that um, counts us out. Yeah, when you mentioned, when I suggested doing this movie and you're like, it's a 2019, and I'm like, no, really? Like, can't be. Can't possibly I mean, be. It's been with it, us it, forever. It's like, truly the, the most, like, wiped from the play- face of the earth movie we've done. So it's like, time, time, listen, we are still in quarantine. Time is still a fluid construct. Isn't I'll say fluid? this, though. It's more like a gaseous anomaly. I'm going to take take a little bit of the other tack for I don't feel like this movie is wiped from the face of the earth. I feel like nobody's seen it, but I feel like a lot of people have opinions of it because a lot of people sort of observed that promotional, you know, blitz for it with the with the posters and whatnot, and remember hearing about just how bad it is. I just don't think anybody's seen it. I don't think any of our listeners have seen it. But I do feel like they know what it is. Be fascinated if any of them watch this. Yeah. for this episode and if they do i apologize um <laughs> all right i gotta explain what this movie is. yes you do 60 seconds on the clock are you ready sure go okay so jacob tremblay plays this little boy named rupert he uh wants to be an actor he's obsessed with this uh other actor named john f donovan who's basically on like a cw show um but he's a little gay boy his mom is natalie portman she wants to be an actress but like she doesn't get jobs whatever um or maybe they both want to act whatever anyway uh, cut forward to the future when uh, Rupert is an older actor and he's being interviewed by Tandy Newton about his relationship to John F. Donovan. Apparently they exchanged letters and it was a big controversy, whatever. Seconds. We also go and see like John F. Donovan's life where he's closeted and he uh, like uh, struggles and like loses this uh, big like superhero movie because of these letters coming out. Uh, we never really know if he wrote those letters, though the movie tells us it's very super confusing. Um Anyway, Ten Jacob Tremblay and Natalie Portman reconcile their tough relationship. Uh, Kit Harrington sings Lifehouse in a Bathtub and dies. Um, and then uh, I, I guess we kind of know what happened, and then we don't. It's. Yeah. Okay. Um, Do you think John F. Donovan wrote those letters? Okay. This is one of the three sort of like big conversation points I want to have. It's incredibly confusing. It's incredible. It's. It for really most... feels like John F. Donovan, the letters that Rupert are sent, is like a Santa situation, and his mom is writing them, right? That's what it seems like it's, it's going to turn not. out to be for a lot of the movie, and then it doesn't. It It's, it's yes, I think you're, I definitely suspected that it was Natalie Portman's character writing these letters because she doesn't want her son to feel alone, and she sees that her, her son is, this is the only thing in his life that brings him joy. He gets bullied at school, but he looks so forward to coming home and watching the show. Um, pin in that, because I want to talk about the show for a minute. Um, oh, full, like, Vampire Diaries. Um, let's just, well, I've, I've got my theories. I've got my theories, but yeah. We're, yeah, pin in that. Um, and then... The the story comes out. It's a scandal for him. It's a it's sort of it's twinned with the other scandal of him uh, having carrying on this affair with the Chris Zilka character. So like both of those things kind of emerge around the same time, and it, it swirls into this one big story. I think the cutting out of the Jessica Chastain character take like leaves a lot of that up in the air in terms of like what exactly right, the tenor of the scandal like is. There's this suggestion that he's, like, writing letters to 
a 12-year-old boy. And the suggestion, I guess, is they're trying to say he's a pedophile, but you never right. see anyone in the press call him right. a pedophile. And I feel like the Jessica Chastain character would be the one who was doing that, and we just don't get that. Right. You're right. It's all left to, like, innuendo. But as far as we know, we've we've heard, like... As far as we know, these letters are exactly what they turn out to be, which is totally innocuous and, you know, nice and sweet and whatever. But the letters... the last one that, like, reads like a suicide note. But we never see Kit Harrington like, writing him a letter. We never really get any confirmation that he actually wrote them. We get confirmation that Portman didn't. We get confirmation that Portman didn't because we finally eventually see her receive the one note and she reads it and she's moved and she cries on it and she gets felt tip ink on her thumb and uh, that's a callback to the first scene. And And the letter, like a report that she thinks is about John F. Donovan is really about his mom and how like they have a great life together. Cut to them slow motion running in the rain towards each other set to Florence Welch doing Stand By Me. Wait. Is that the is that the order of things? I guess that is the order of things. No, yes. the stand by me thing happens earlier. That's when because that yeah, happens it's fully the resolution of their story, and there's like another forty five minutes left. <laughs> right, but you're right. I think it's uh, once we find out that it's not Portman, we in the audience know it must be John F. Donovan, and yet we never see on the John F. Donovan side of things confirmation of that and it's not like i need to like have a registered letter telling me what a plot point is but emotionally for that character it's very important that we see what those letters what writing those letters and what this correspondence means to him it's also that his side of the story is presented that this whole thing is ludicrous Right. It's like he is so... He goes on the talk show and he laughs it off and it's all very sort of like cold and heartless. Like affirmational in all of his uh, scenes that it's not true as the mom is. That like our suspicions that the mom Santa Claus these letters. And yet you get the sense... I go back to that Kathy Bates scene. Kathy Bates plays his manager and she gets her big monologue as she's telling him that she's essentially firing him as a client. And I... From it's one of those sort of like uh, a little bit kind of an obtuse, uh, opaque monologue where you don't know exactly the specifics of what has caused her to dump him. But I don't think from the tone of what she's saying, because she's sort of talking about how she wants to work with, you know, pure sort of artist. And it doesn't sound Mm -hmm. like she's dumping him because of the gay rumors. It sounds like she's dumping him because he totally disavowed this child on the talk show and it was cruel. And it seems like she knows that it was a lie. And that's why she doesn't want to work with him because she doesn't think he's a good guy. Yeah. It's all incredibly like confusing. And like, this is what I was saying that, I feel like the longer version of the movie probably fleshed these things out to where it's like, it is about this, or it actually ties these things together that, like you're saying, feel very vague. And, like, that's what got cut out. And yet, this story, the story of a closeted actor on a CW show who maintains a, you know, pen pal relationship with this kid who grows up and then, you know, wants to, is giving, I still, I genuinely don't understand why Tandy Newton's character is interviewing grown-up Jacob Tremblay, played by Ben I want to talk about that. I have a 
theory. So, and like, it's all of the, that is It's strange. the least grace I have to give to Dolan. I agree. That's the worst scene. I, we... I do want to cut him some slack for this movie because I don't, I, I don't know. I, okay. Uh, yes. We'll, we'll, like, in Tandy a Newton's character makes that impossible <clears throat> to me. Um, but, sorry, go ahead. But, yes, the long version of this movie, I think, like, threads all those things together. And, like, in the end, like, what is this movie about like i guess it's vaguely kind of about homophobia in the media and like right in relation to star image because like who is the mold for john f donovan is it because he dies mysteriously and like we're not we're led to believe it could possibly be a suicide but like is it it remains a mystery i don't think it's based on it doesn't feel to me like it's based on any particular uh real life antecedent right but it's like the idea of a a person or a certain level of star like is it river phoenix is it right um or, like, any of you the, like, know. rumored... So, like, this TV show that he's on, you're right, Absolute CW Vibes, it's called Hellsome High. I'm, it's the absolute most I'm, thing, I'm fa- thing I'm most fascinated with in this movie, for sure. I wanted to, like, pause every frame of when we got that show just to, like, parse <laughs> it out. There's one point... So, like, he's, like, a teen, first of all, and that's kind of, like, perfect. He's, like, Kit Harrington is obviously not a teen, but, like, that's the level of 20-something that will be playing right, a teen. Right. He's playing a teen who has supernatural powers, and he's, like, among, like, a group of people, a group of classmates or whatever, that, like, either they all have supernatural powers. At one point, Tremblay, when he's watching the show, watching the season premiere of the show, and, like, fucking freaking out about it and he's like he has a new power yes so like clearly like there are powers um there's a scene that they're filming that you see him filming on set with sarah gadden gadden gadon i never i genuinely have no idea canadian queen um where she's wearing she's working as she's a diner waitress and she's wearing this sort of like teal uniform and i'm like that's exactly the uniform that sherry appleby wears in roswell so like it was giving me (laughs) very very Roswell. roswell vibes but you're right in that like it but like the next generation of C- of WB shows after like vampire diaries era but it like feels very much like a roswell show so like but he's a bigger star than like a jason bear on roswell ever was he's a bigger star than like an ian summerhalder even on vampire diaries was mm-hmm. he's at the level of like a vanderbeek or a joshua jackson and, like, even kind of bigger than that because he's up for a superhero role. So, like, clearly, yeah. like, he is the breakout star of this show. So, like, I was fascinated with kind of the Hollywood economics of that, which seem – I would have liked to have maybe even gotten into a little bit more of that because, like, that was kind of, you know, fascinating to me. I would love just got, like, a behind-the-scenes drama about, like, the goings-on at a WB show, which would have been amazing. Um, okay, here's the other thing. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, and I backed off very quickly, um, when I mentioned that there was part of the aesthetic of Running with Scissors that made me feel like Ryan Murphy was doing a Todd Haynes movie. At the very least, you have to admit to me that Death and Life of John F. Donovan made you think of Velvet Goldmine once or twice. The structure of it, sure. Um, yeah. Like, and I know that Velvet Goldmine isn't itself borrowing from the structure of like a citizen cane or something like that right like the idea of a story being told via a reporter seeking out the story of this you know famous figure like that is not 
exclusive or new to Velvet Goldmine. But this idea that like it was this queer kid who grew up idolizing this figure and this figure helped him like uh, find figure out some things about himself and that also they have this like personal connection that nobody believes that is all Velvet Goldmine to me. Like I kept thinking of it for sure, except obviously Velvet Goldmine is a masterpiece (laughs) and this is not, but yeah, no, I, I mean, there's also a certain level of the Tremblay Portman, uh, duality, which is never not crazy. Like (laughs) I can never, when they are on screen together, wrap my brain around Natalie Portman and Jacob Tremblay screaming at each other in a Zavia Delon movie. I don't know how it happened. I hate that the last few weeks I've seen the, my two least favorite Natalie Portman performances of all time. <laughs> After Goya's Ghosts and now this. I don't think she's good in this. How many she's... Portmans are we at now? Is this four? 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 I, I just uh, added this to our little spreadsheet today. It's our fourth Portman and it's our fourth Sarandon. So... And both of them obviously were in anywhere but here. So And uh, obviously Emily Hampshire is coming for their gig. She's going right. to uh, she's, two, she's gonna be the reigning queen of the show. Two with a bullet. It is our first Tandy Newton and our first Kathy Bates. So um Wild that it's our that. first Kathy Bates. Wild that it's our first Kathy Bates. But yeah, so we can celebrate that. But um, their relationship, like there's a certain level of all of Delon's movies that it is like family members screaming at each other. Yes. In a way that has there is, been prescribed by his critics as autobiographical and he has rebutted that to some extent but this one really feels like because the jacob tremblay character would be roughly around the same age group especially if you're talking about like roswell dawson's creek or like those type of old school wb shows that uh, John F. Donovan's show looks exactly like. There's that scene. It's really to the point where I feel like, is this movie trolling his critics? Like, is he almost daring you to right. pull out the same complaints about his other movies? And then he wants to pull out the rug and say, oh, no, but it is about this. It is about your shallowness. It's about you not taking those things seriously. Right. Okay. Two things. Which, okay, go into that, and then I will loop it around to uh, Tandy Newton. Okay, yes. All right, two things. One of which is, my other thing about this being a WB show is, um, it made me think of Buffy, but not in the showness of it. Like, Buffy is also a show about high schoolers with supernatural In the fandom right? of it? Yes. So the scene where Jacob, Jacob Tremblay, Tremblay comes home and screaming at the TV, it's like, go off, queen. I understand what that feels like. This is the I thing. and that child. He externalizes, and it's kind of, as many of, unfortunately, Tremblay's scenes are in this movie, kind of embarrassing, the way he's, like, literally just, like, screaming incoherently. But, like, it's an externalization of what I feel like the internal feelings of a lot of young queer kids watching, I think, specifically Buffy back then. Or, like, whatever. I guess it's, like, whatever, you know, supernatural WB show you were into. But, like, I've heard, I've talked to fellow Buffy fans a lot about this and it's you know you're this young queer kid and this show you are absolutely obsessed with and the idea of like he at one point mentions it's like the season premiere 
And so he's watching the new credits and it's just like, it's new opening credits. And he's so fucking psyched for it. And I'm just like, oh yeah, I've had that internal monologue about the new season of Buffy. And what are we going to see in the new season credits? And he's like, he's got a new power. That's when he says he's got a new power. It's in the new opening credits to the show. So like that to me felt, and that's the Xavier Dolan that I love, which is he does in his movies, he's able to oftentimes make these little connections to like, oh yeah, that is, like, that's really real. That's sort of this pop-infused MTV, as you mentioned, sort of hyper-modern, but like very acutely observed things about growing up queer. And like, that was really well done, even though that scene, I do think, is a cringe, because it's just like, it is, again, just like Jacob Trump, like, screaming incoherently. (laughs) But it's a cringe because it's just like... There's not really, like, depth to it or it's not presented in an interesting way because I'm with you. I think that idea is interesting and doesn't really get explored in movies. But um, I don't know. Just because you put a cheeseburger on the table doesn't make it a cheese, a tasty cheeseburger, you know? like I No, I, I don't disagree with that statement. The other thing I wanted to mention is... Dolan talked about at the can. Or at the, I'm doing the same thing that you are, is assuming that this was can because all his shit is can. And didn't like Tiff like not pr- program his movies for like a, the longest time? Wasn't that like a whole like? I feel like he I was. Don't know if that was a thing. I feel like it, um, I might be conflating it with a can thing that can had been relegating him to like. Uh, well, off of mommy the main was competition the first one that was in competition. Tom at the farm went to Venice. But I don't know if there was drama there. I really liked Tom at the Farm. Nobody, that's the Dolan movie that nobody Tom talks about. Tom at the Farm about, is a good one. And I really like yeah. that movie. Anyway, um, before the thing screened at TIFF, he actually, Dolan spoke and he actually like had with him this fan letter that he had written to Leonardo DiCaprio at age eight. And so I think not only by that like being the case, but that him talking about that so much, it makes it impossible to not read this movie as at least partially autobiographical, right? Like, obviously, these the events didn't happen, but, like, there's obviously a lot of himself in the setup, in this conceit that this, like, little kid wrote this fan letter, and maybe this is a, you know, what-if kind of fantasia about, like, what if this superstar had maintained correspondence with him or whatever. And I think you're right. And I think that's what then makes... If we're supposed to see this Jacob Tremblay character who grows up to be the Ben Schnetzer character as a avatar for Xavier Dolan, then that scene at the diner that you're about to talk about with Tandy Newton becomes mm-hmm. especially gross. Um, embarrassing, I would I would say. It's, it's my major problem with the movie. It makes it feel like this movie is a troll on his critics where it's like... You know, he wants to rub their nose and shit. But at the same time, if you, that's why I think the timeline of this movie is so important. Like, maybe this was repurposed or rewritten after it's, after the can reception of It's Only the End of the World. But like, Tandy Newton literally says at one point with like a sigh in her voice that she'd like, just got back from covering war in the Middle East. Yes. And then Ben Schnetzer goes into this whole diatribe against her of like, well, basically amounting to, yeah, well, homophobia is just as bad. Like, why can't this also be bad? Like, okay, yes, it is true that multiple things can be bad at the same time, but the way that it's positioned in this movie 
is so gross. Like, it's... she is supposed to be um, insensitive, uncultured, um, out of touch because she's calling something trite in the way that Zavia Delon's critics have called some of his work trite. And... It's it's the movie arguing for the nobility of its own navel-gazing in a way yes. that feels like real-time defensive. It's like you're watching a movie become defensive in real time. And A, I don't think and it like, needs it. It's always not even go there to this movie is shallow without that scene. I mean, I think like, I probably would have, its own but... Shallowness. It is. I mean, it's yes, definitely true. pointing out its own shallowness for sure. But like, it is very. It's cynical that scene where yeah. it's like you assume where I am with this because maybe it's possible. Yeah. That I wouldn't feel that way. It's one it of my least favorite tropes movie. anyway, which is uh, putting a critic in your own movie to then inoculate yourself against critics. We've seen it in good movies like Ratatouille. We've seen it in bad movies like um, Lady in the Water. Uh, we've seen it I in movies that... I think you cut out the critic scene of Lady in the Water and it's an infinitely better movie. Sure, but I think we've that... But I do feel like that scene is very important to the message of that movie. And uh, we've seen it in movies that some people like and some people hate, like Birdman. And... In this movie, it just comes across like as Birdman. especially transparent. And <laughs> I think of there's that scene at the very end where Ben Schnetzer, who I love, I do love Ben Schnetzer, and we'll talk about that in a second, um, leaves the diner and hops on the back of his motorcycle with his like absolute smoke show of a boyfriend. And I was just as and, bittersweet symphony fucking as plays. Bittersweet Symphony plays. I do want to talk about the soundtrack too. As Bittersweet Symphony I was plays say we're gonna we're gonna go into We're gonna a argue about it. We're gonna fight. We're gonna fight the soundtrack to this movie. We're gonna fight about it. It's fine. Um but then Tandy Newton sort of like gazing beatifically at, at outside the diner window and like giving them that like nod of approval that just like yes you're you know you, the fact that you grew up <laughs> you are noble, to have sir. a boyfriend that is super hot is like an accomplishment that i that is worthy of my recognition <laughs> and yeah bittersweet symphony is a wildly cliched choice so much of the soundtrack choices in this movie how did they afford them? Like, the <laughs> well, songs are, like, chart-topping hits. But, like, like, from a decade prior. Like, they're all, like, I guess Rolling in the Deep at that point was still Again, probably a good five years like old. It like a troll because it's like, oh, this is the music you grew up with, right? Because, like, Kiss Me is playing in the background of a song. Oh, There's I missed that. Green Day song. Um, you get Pink, Don't Let Me Get Me, which is one of the most underrated Pink songs. I really love uh, that song. A fantastic song, but like, here's the here's the issue, unless you are really, really smart and intentional of, in the inclusion of like, why you are doing those songs, because like, these huge songs are so incidental to the movie. Like, and like, if you are intentional, one of them don't isn't. be cringy. <laughs> uh, definitely not. Um, but it's like you're talking about huge songs that most of your audience is already going to have a personal relationship with that is like you can't – I don't know. Like 
aside from the cringiness, it's like, don't let me get me. Like, I remember being a gay teenager and, like, I have a relationship with that song. So, like, if you put it in, like, the background of a taxi scene, I'm going to be taken out of the movie. Well, or Um, the fact that, like, Bittersweet Symphony, to me, that song belongs to Cruel Intentions. And you can't have it. Well-used popular song. Right. Yeah, Cruel Intentions. I remember uses popular. I remember describing the Stand by Me sequence to friend and former guest uh, Nick Davis and watching the light go out in his eyes. That's a bad Uh, scene. Okay, so here's here's one thing I thought was fascinating is I read an interview with Dolan around the time that this movie comes out, and he mentioned that he wanted to use this movie to pay homage to what he termed as 90s family drama. And then he lists like six Uh movies and most of them are comedies. But he said he had references in this movie to Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire, Jumanji, Stepmom, Titanic, The Little Princess, and Batman Returns. I And I get that, like, half of this movie is on the cutting room floor, so maybe all of those references are there. The only reference that when I was reading that list of movies that I could think of in the movie is the Florence Welch song where they where Portman and Tremblay run to each other and embrace, and she sort of, like, crouches down, which did remind me of the scene at the end of Home Alone where uh, Kevin and his mom uh, embrace in the foyer of And I movie. suppose, like... Tremblay screaming is basically Macaulay Culkin running around the house and screaming. I guess. Oh, God, that scene where Tremblay basically dresses down his mother, like Natalie Portman, and talks about her, like, failed ambitions, and it's so overworded and it's so overly verbose, and Tremblay can't do it. Like, I feel bad for him, but, like, he doesn't have it in him to pull this off and like what child would like what child is worldly enough to yeah, nobody talks like this. to nail this but like oh it's so maybe if the character was like 16 but like that watched nothing but kevin williamson product <laughs> maybe i guess but like even that like there's a difference between having all of that dialogue swirling in your head to being able to like express it in a way but like do any of those references hit to you at all like is that not the wildest list of i don't understand how he made like if he said this movie is about my relationship to those movies i would absolutely get it he says these are the films i wanted to pay homage to and he says they're all referenced in this film i don't see it (laughs) I don't. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't. There is the scene, especially. There is um, the scene where uh, Kathy Bates runs into a stampede of rhinoceroses, which does remind me a little bit mm-hmm. of Jumanji. But like, other than that, 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 that scene yeah. was good. Um, I thought Kathy Bates's monologue was really good. I thought I wanted to see more of her character after that. W- scene. We love Kathy. Kathy's great when yeah. she's not in Richard Jewell. Um, <laughs> it's a great we talk cast. about the two most upsetting music cues in this movie though worse than the stand by me scene i am going to make a defense of the lifehouse scene and you're going to lose all respect for me but i'm going to oh boy okay well then let's get into that first okay uh kid harrington doing hanging by a moment in a bathtub while his bro is there and then it goes into slow motion while Susan his bro Sarandon and his mom stares longingly at him still jamming out to hanging by a moment this is what this is what I was talking about when I said that I appreciate Xavier Dolan's sort of daring sincerity is 
he risks, that's a risky scene. He risks looking sure. fucking lame as hell in that scene by bringing, because he, like, he's not so out of touch that he thinks Lifehouse is cool in 2017. Like, he's just not. He does not, he does not think that. But he, like, to me, that song evokes a very specific era for me, yes. which is like yes. me sure, being sure, in sure. college. Um, but, like, I absolutely believe, because a lot of times, these filmmakers, it reminds me of those uh, Twitter prompts where it was just like, what song do you remember from like this is this? And everybody unfailingly puts like the most perfectly manicured, like not too popular, but not too uncool, like exactly the I kind think of that's song. That's a cynical way to look at people's choices. I'm sorry. I think it's true. Um, not that I haven't done it also in the past, but like, yeah, I do think that, and I do think you get that way with, you know, filmmakers too. It's like people choose their songs so specifically. And I do feel like there is some kind of value in a filmmaker being like, this song choice is fully not cool, but it's what these characters would have been into when they were young and bonded to each other. And this song does make sense of that as something that would be like a touchstone point for them. And like, it's dorky as fuck. And it is fully bizarre that it's happening in the bathtub where like, he's in this like bubble bath and uh, they're all smoking pot, him and his brother and his mom. And the two brothers start singing and it's definitely super weird, and it definitely, but it's the only scene in that whole, all of those scenes of him with his family, that I could picture what this family was. Yes. Do you and know what I, I mean? I'm with you on all of the points you are making. My problems with the scene is, A, it's a, it's a, a, a sentiment, a moment that mommy has already expressed a million times better yeah. and more effectively. Correct. But I, I, I don't think it's that hanging by a moment is dorky. I could probably unabashedly jam out to that silly song right now and have no bad feelings about it. I think it's that it's too familiar and like we have our own relationships to that song that like you put it in a scene like that and it is immediately distracting. It's not that it's not cool. It's that it's just such a ubiquitous song that like used in this way, it's just very distracting. See, my counter to that though is I think any song that wouldn't that would be more obscure or like that wouldn't have that wouldn't risk having any kind of uh, popular attachments to the viewers in any number of ways. You put a Vertical Horizon song in the scene instead. But why would a Vertical Horizon song be any more or it any wasn't less big distracting? Of a hit. Like, I feel like I say Vertical Horizon, and that's a deep cut. But like, Hanging by a Moment isn't. I think both. I mean, I it, it, unless you're doing like an album cut of a Vertical Horizon song or something. At which point, <laughs> I do feel like then that's too self consciously trying to seem cooler than you are. I just, I don't. I guess I don't see it that way. I'm just saying, like, uh, uh, 
it's a big ask for people to put aside their own relationships with like hugely popular music. Like, but he does risk that with the Wonderwall scene in Mommy, and it succeeds a lot better than this one. But it's the same principle to me. Like, I don't see why one other than the fact that well, Oasis yeah. and Mommy that we, also hasn't done it with fifteen other songs before that scene. Correct. But like, I think it. I think it's the same principle of why the Wonderwall scene works in in Mommy, and I think. I don't know. I think the difference is that like Oasis is a more respected band than Lifehouse is. And well, I, I was going to say, more. I'm not I'm not trying to uh, uh, wade into the argument that I've said I disagree with. But like uh, Wonderwall is cool. <laughs> Wonderwall is still cool. OK, other than Lifehouse, we should talk about the other one, which is the opening credits, which don't happen until like 15 minutes into the movie, are set to rolling in the deep. They sure are. Adele was supposed they to be sure in this movie. Was supposed to no make a cameo reason. in this movie. Yeah, his buddy Adele. Which okay, here this is going to launch me into my other theory about Delon because I feel like I've shat on him more than I wanted to. I feel like I am actually an, a, a Delon apologist. Um, here's the thing about his aesthetic: it I think gets shit on because it is somewhat of a like music video aesthetic. Yeah. And when the Adele Hello video that oh, he directed forgot that yes. shot in IMAX, which like <laughs> that was the thing that I was like, okay, that was my eye roll when it was like I shot an Adele video in IMAX, and it's like put it in a theater or I don't care. Um, it's a perfect music video. He's perfect for it. It's like I wonder. If he had started in music videos rather than like revered can selected cinema, <laughs> I think because like we we've talked about this on previous episodes, directors who start in music videos and then go on to movies get a certain level of respect. Yes. At least maybe if not at first, eventually. And it's like he's worked in the opposite direction. And I feel like he could still give us some banger music videos. The problem is music videos barely exist anymore. Like, except for those, like, sure. very, very top of the line. Again, it's got to be, you've got to be Wop. making an IMAX movie for Adele to to make it happen. Otherwise, like, music video is not a thing the way it was for David Fincher or uh, um, Jonathan Glazer or these you know, yeah. directors who cut their teeth on that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, too bad. Music videos are, are Spike Jones at this point. Yeah. God, I loved that era though of like superstar music video directors. I, and the, the best is I can still sort of blow people's minds and tell them that like David Fincher directed the Vogue video and everybody like fucking flips out. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, yeah, but it's a certain sentiment that, uh, uh, it, it seems is absolutely right for his talents in a way that like, yeah, if you don't tell me that it's shot on an IMAX camera when it's just about, I mean like, see that doesn't, bo- with, I don't like the that doesn't IMAX bother format me. with Adele's face. I would watch it in an IMAX theater and see her giant, a giant screen of just her face. Of course I'd watch that, but that, like, I don't know for whatever reason that I don't mind the pretension, I guess I mind the, Sort of, I, I guess I mind the brattiness. I don't mind the pretension. Like, ultimately, like, you know, these film directors, 
are like that. <laughs> and part of the reason, like, you can't make a movie like Mommy if you're not at least a little bit of that kind of person. And I mean, I don't think you can make a movie without being an asshole, period, um, on some level, because it takes that much uh, uh, control of an environment. Um which is not to excuse like bad behavior, but like yeah, there's no a, not to there's a degree of like behavior, self like, self centered sort of again pretension. Absolutely, that, that's yeah. that's the point. And it's that's again that's the risk. That's sort of what you risk as an artist to do that kind of stuff. And like that's cool. Um, what are, I are, think Xavier Dolan is one of those people that people conflate a bunch of different behaviors as the same thing simply because they don't like him. <laughs> because there's the pretension, the brattiness, and then the indulgence, right? Which are all three different things that right. he has in spades. But like, I think a lot of the critics take umbrage with the indulgence, and that drives me crazy. Because when you go to the movies, I want to see indulgent shit. I don't want to, like, I want it to be good. I want it to not be pretentious. But, like, indulgence gets you uh, the interview with a vampire. It gets you Moulin Rouge. Like, why is indulgence a bad thing when you're talking about movies? Gets you mother. Um... Gets you mother. Yeah. Gets you mommy. But it's they're Not but the they're always going to be a little bit divisive and like that's fine. What's interesting to me is like that Dolan has had this reputation since before he even got all that indulgent. Like it seems like he had this reputation from like I killed my mother and heartbeats, both of which are at least like formally a lot more modest than something like mommy. Like heartbeats is essentially mm-hmm. just like a it's not mumblecore but it's sort of like it's an indie dramedy right indie drama indie romantic sort of drama yeah and queer drama right exactly it's like uh, if we had queer dramas like that in the 90s we'd be like you know so much better off today but it's also a certain thing of like we don't have a lot of filmmakers his age because when he shot his first movie he was like 18 years old right yeah it's like imagine what we would be like, uh, given the platform that he's had uh, right. when we were that age. We'd probably also be insufferable too. He also um, works very quickly. Like he's make he's yeah. made so many movies in his twenties and so many like really ambitious movies. The amb- the ambition sort of like made a whole was ass it a movie real after steep, this one uh, incline and yeah, which is the uh, M- Matthias and Maxime is a little bit of, like, a return to that, like, sort of, like, older, more modest Heartbeats era kind of form Mm -hmm. for him. And it's good. I don't think it's great. I I do feel like what I want out of him is something that is more audacious than that. But did you see it? I thought it was fine. (laughs) Yeah. I thought it was good. I I thought it was certainly... It feels like, you know, coming back to home base after a big swing and a failure like John F. Donovan. Yeah. But I do yeah. hope he starts I to. It as that. But I do hope he starts to like claw back towards something. I hope that like the failure of John F. Donovan doesn't keep him from trying to make something big like that again. Just, you know, he'll have learned, hopefully like learned something. The, there's, there's a reason some filmmakers don't make as many movies as he has because he needs the time to like really gestate his projects and decide 
the kind of stories he wants to make because like John F. Donovan is, uh, it's not about any one thing. It's just kind of this like phantasmagoria that I'm like, maybe a four hour version would have felt complete right? to get all of it in there or tie some things together. But like, I don't know. It still feels like he's figuring out the type of stories he wants to tell. And, and he's, I mean, in, he's my 30. To that is so you like, don't have to make that many movies. Sure. But also like, you know, no skin off my ass if he makes a movie I don't like and wants to keep, you know what I mean? It's like, sure, 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 sure. Keep sure. making movies. Keep making movies. And, you and know. like, he can do this because, like, he was a child actor and, like, he especially had a long career of doing uh, dubbed voiceover works. Like, he's yeah. famously the French uh, Ron Weasley, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned to uh, the. He wanted Adele to make a cameo in this movie. Uh, Jessica Chastain fully like filmed an entire role that wasn't in this. And then the other uh, change for this movie in the production phase was it was supposed to be Nicholas Holt in the grown-up Jacob Tremblay role. And it was recast as Ben Schnetzer, which to me, I feel for whatever reason, and I like Nicholas Holt a lot, but he's because he's in the X-Men movie and he dated Jennifer Lawrence and all this, that yeah. casting feels a little more stunty than like Ben Schnetzer's just a good actor. And if you haven't seen him in Pride, again, we our highest recommendation. We have to, to hit our monthly movie. quota of telling listeners to watch it. They should. They should watch it. Um he's also what's his line in Snowden that um was in all the trailers? Fuck. I am upset that you think that I watched Snowden. No, but it was in the trailers. You've obviously seen the trailer. For... Yeah, eventually. Um, isn't it something about just like... Uh... The whole kingdom's Snow White. Very Mary, you and Danger Girl. Sort of. Um, but very sort of like conspiracy thriller Molly, or whatever. you and Danger. My favorite thing about Ben Schnetzer is that his father uh, is American soap opera star Steven Schnetzer, who was on My Favorite Soap as a Kid, Another World. And he played the like... Uh, like incredibly like this cad of a of a lawyer i think he was perhaps anyway i loved it i loved another world so i will always have loyalty to ben schnetzer because of that because he is a legacy as far as i'm concerned you know who i do think comes out unscathed in this movie who miss susan okay yes i love susan sarandon i will always maybe the only character i buy in this movie Oh, that's interesting because I feel like those family scenes, with the exception of um, my favorite scene in the history of cinema, which is the Lifehouse scene, um, they feel very cliched. Wrote like that dinner table scene to me felt like eight billion other like unhappy. Oh, everyone family else in that scene is terrible. Dinner table scenes. I actually thought the guy who plays his brother, the Letterkenny guy, is is pretty good in that he's just sort of like he is the um, the dimmer light in a family where one of the children is like this big star, and he's yeah. just like the deeply low key uh, brother. I don't think the movie again. I keep saying this with the exception of the Lifehouse scene. I'm sorry. I'm I'm a loser. Um, does a great job of fleshing out that family in too terribly specific detail. I just think that her scene, specifically just the scenes of her and Kit Harrington, it feels like <laughs> the movie's only level ground. It feels like a viable character. It feels like even just like the crumbs were given feel 
real and like I feel like I'm watching a person and not a construct that Delon wants to yell at us about. Yeah. No, I agree with that. There's a line reading she has where um it's right towards the end where he says, uh, can I stay tonight? And she says, well, you can stay here for the rest of your life. And it's that like sister Helen Prejean, like beatific, uh, sort of beautiful <laughs> mom, like eternal mom, uh, stare back at him. That I but it's was... also the good Delon too. That's like yeah. the type of thing that like he understands the intensity of that and can make it cinematic. He like... writes really, uh, interesting mother-son relationships which is why again the portman tremblay relationship being such a weak point of this movie is so disappointing yeah but anyway what else did i want to talk about i have like a bajillion notes for this a lot of them were about it's hard the CW not to have show. a bajillion notes for this movie oh, with that, everything that speaking of the the music choices that the theme song for the cw show was blink 182's adam song which like makes yeah. no sense but like it's also oh, like it's blink- i said green day earlier but yeah it is blink 182 it's blink 182 i was trying to think of like what green day song happened that i missed but yeah that would uh that would make sense Michael Gambon fully has a scene where he's probably maybe a ghost and he gives a Dumbledore monologue to Kit Harrington. (laughs) To a stranger. Michael Gambon is absolutely the worst thing about this movie. Like you cut out Jessica Chastain (laughs) as a villain and you kept Michael Gambon as like Ghost Dumbledore from the from the tube scene in the last Harry Potter. What? Yeah. It's weird. That's the new manic pixie dream girl, magical scarved homosexual stranger. Um, we haven't talked about Kit Harrington, and I'm sort of bracing for uh, your evisceration of of his performance. We do have to talk about Kit Harrington because if we don't talk about the one Game of Thrones person in this movie, the listeners will be very angry that we didn't talk about it. Uh, my opinion about uh, Kit Harrington in this movie is the same about my opinion of Kit Harrington in Game of Thrones. I have no opinion. <laughs> I have never watched Game of Thrones. It does not seem like uh, my vibe. I don't. Uh, I don't know, man. Game of Thrones I think is he's good. Fine in this movie. Game of Thrones is good. I think Kit Harrington is fine in this movie. I think he's he's kept at that character is kept at too much of an arm's length emotionally to have as many scenes as he does. Like if we're supposed to make him super, you know, mysterious, then he shouldn't be in this movie as much. Like we should see less of him. And if I we're gonna see as much as we do with asking... him. Yeah. Ahead. No, you're right. I think it's also, if it's asking for him to be like, I mean, you mentioned Delon has a letter he wrote to Leonardo DiCaprio, and I know that some people might have their knives out for me for saying this, but like, he has to be DiCaprio level hot. I'm sorry. He's just not hot for like what. I disagree. The type of star persona that he's supposed to be having. I think he's hot enough. I think he's not charismatic enough as a TV star. Yeah, like, like I, I, I think it asks for like a James Dean level screen persona of like charisma, mystery, hotness. Yes and no. Okay, so because I think if you make this movie a certain way, you can you can make it be about how the the person in the Jacob Trombley role puts all of this onto this guy right it's not like all these cw stars that have these shows 
are Leonardo DiCaprio level charismatic. Like that's rare, but we're fans of these people when we're young and we put, you know, a lot onto Jason Bear or Joshua Jackson or James Marsters or like any of these, you know, Tom Welling, all of these guys who like, you're super into these shows when you're younger and you have all this obsession. And then as adults, you're just like, people are really into, like, I get, I do get the Ian Somerhalder thing. People are really into the other Vampire Diaries brother. Like, but there are people who like, will fucking flip out over that guy. Or like, you know, again, you think, you know, Tom Welling, James Marsters, all these guys who just like, they're not untalented and they're, you know, but like, there is no way of seeing them the way that you see them when you are like, Sure. An obsessed teenager or preteen or whatever, putting all of your like roiling emotional whatever into these guys. And if the movie was filmed in that way, again, where you get less of Harrington and you get, he's much more of an object because the movie does deny you these really key pieces. Like even the scenes with him and Chris Zilka, who like, I love that Chris Zilka is like, um, universal language he's like uh, the type o positive or whatever type o negative universal donor for gay crush object in movies where <laughs> do you know what i mean where it's just like it's him sure. in uh what's the greg Araki movie that he's in the end of the world movie the apocalypse movie that kaboom? they made a stars sh- yes kaboom um like that what was the stars show that they made that was like essentially the same as kaboom Oh, God, I don't even remember. Anyway, um, but I feel like that's his vibe, right? Where, like, anytime Chris Zilka shows up, he's just sort of just like, oh, what if, you know, he's this kind of, like, dream, uh, you know, gay hunk character. Like, God a certain him. degree of sweaty, but never, like, too sweaty. Right, um, exactly. I don't know. I guess Kit Harrington isn't really even on, like, a Skeet Ulrich level. Like, maybe if John F. That is was, like, some slanjar. Wow. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree, and I feel like I want to write Kit Harrington a letter of apology just on your behalf, just because that is mean. Why? Skeet Ulrich was hot. Like he was believable. Like it's Do you go back do you go back and watch Scream and just be like Skeet Ulrich is hot? Or do you go back and watch Scream and be like, I can't believe I thought Skeet Ulrich was hot? Um I maybe think that Skeet I should have thought Skeet Ulrich was hotter. Like I just rewatched Scream. <laughs> if you didn't notice from my like off the charts levels of Scream references this episode, um, yeah, stab me, stab me, Skeet Ulrich. Wow. Okay. Kit Harrington. The thing that people don't like about Kit, Har- Kit Harrington, I have found, is the sort of the thing that I do like about him. Whereas he is the perfect sort of like little pouty mouth sad boyness, where it's just like, yes, that's what. He is. Like, we can't... That's what you put him on that show for. That is... Everybody wants him to be, like... for a lot of people. It doesn't do it for me. For me, I'm like, well, then have a juice box, darling. I don't know what to tell you. Oh, my God. Wow. Um, I don't know. I feel like I want to wait about five years before anybody is allowed to talk about Game of Thrones again and we have some sort of, like, distance from that show. Because right now, it is very fashionable to, like, shit all the way over that show. And... As somebody who was incredibly resistant to that show for a while, and then I feel like I got convinced and won over by then all of the people who then immediately started, like, turning on that show and shitting on it. I'm just like, well, this doesn't seem quite fair. <laughs> like, the you- moment that Game of Thrones could have hooked me where I was like, oh, maybe I will try out this show was also at the time that, like, you had the pieces about the show that were like, 
why are we using rape as entertainment? So I was immediately put off by the show and never watched it. And then, like, I feel like I turned around and suddenly everybody watched the show in a way that I was like, I need a break from this so I can't watch it. Yeah, I get it. I'm like, I'm like, I'm that way with certain shows, too, where it's just like everybody shut up about this thing. <laughs> Reminds me of like how I feel about Pokemon, where it's just like, stop liking Pokemon. Like, this is stupid. And I don't have any relationship to this, so I think it's stupid. And that's how I feel about that. So We are just too, we are at the exact age of being too old for Pokemon, though. That's like the very specific no, absolutely. Like, other side of the bridge for Pokemon. Yeah, that's true. All right, what else? What else do we want to talk about with this? Hmm. I mean... Oh, the other thing I wrote down, I'm just sort of perusing my notes, that cut scene with Jessica Chastain where Kit Harrington takes to the conference room with a baseball bat, he's wearing a One Ring to Rule Them All t-shirt, which I found deeply funny, and I don't think I can quite explain why, but like oh the specificity God. of that was very funny to me. To loop back to the crazy uh, song choice situation, that Jessica Chastain scene that has since been yanked from YouTube, and you can see why, it was a dance sequence set to a One Republic song. What? Yeah. One Republic, who also had a song in Mommy, or was it just the trailer for Mommy? I can't remember. I think it was just the trailer for Mommy. I need to look up what this song was. I I can hear it on the top of my head. I think it's Till the Love Runs Out. Oh my god. Is that the song? But like, yeah, it was... I will say the soundtrack tab for the Death and Life of John F. Donovan on uh, IMDb is woefully underpopulated, where all it has is Rolling in the Deep, Bittersweet Symphony, Stand By Me, uh, a Cat Power song called Silent Machine, and I think uh, some sort of maybe electronic or instrumental song, but it doesn't have Lifehouse, and it doesn't have Pink, and it doesn't have Blink-182. And I need somebody who does the IMDb things to figure that shit out. It's so extreme that when I was watching that press screening, I was like, is this temp music? because i was like there's no way this will make final cut but i also when i was watching the press screening i was like this movie's going back into the editing room i i don't see this being a version that's released and that's the version that's out there version that released yeah i i mean it sounds so masochistic to say i would like to see the four hour cut of this but like i would like to have technology advance to a place where I can press a button and have already seen a four hour cut of this so that I can like just know what's in it and like call upon it in my memory banks, but not have to like sit through a four hour cut of this movie. But like, I'm fascinated to find out like what else, or maybe just like hear somebody else who's seen the four hour cut of this movie, like explain to me what else is in it and what else it does. DMs are open. Um, because again, I mentioned the like the the relationship between John F. Donovan and this guy Will, the Chris Zilka character, and we see several scenes of them, but it all still seems incredibly vague, and I don't feel like they ever quite sell us on 
what this relationship means to him. Is he just sort of like reaching out into the void and grabbing at someone? Is there real feeling there? You get that scene with him and his brother and you get the sense from his brother that like there's a new guy every, you know, few months where, you know, John is putting these feelings onto. And so is that just like, is that a John thing? But like, there's, I think the fundamental problem of this movie is, again, we get so much of the John character, but we get so little of the internals of the John character. Like, so few of those scenes with him actually work to helping us figure out who he is. Yeah, we need some base level amount of detail uh, in regards to, like, what is actually happening in his life. Or else just make him a mystery and mm-hmm. and make more of the movie about, you know, if not the Jake, the Jacob Tremblay character, then, you know, the Ben Schnetzer version of that character. And make him, like, actually, like, do more of the Velvet Goldmine thing where have him talk to people from John's life rather than, like, having this Tandy Newton character who exists to prop up the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the existence of this movie that we're watching. Yeah. yeah it's too bad (laughs) it's too bad like i don't i don't relish dumping all over delon and or 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 this movie like i do uh, the other thing is like when's what's he gonna have to do to build up enough goodwill to make another movie with an american cast like this again i mean probably go away for a while and come back with another movie that's mommy level great and i get that like there's still some people that don't like that movie but like that was the movie that put him on the path that like this is a director that could have a crossover and like this is the movie we thought would be that crossover I mean, like, there's so many examples of people who do that, like, right down to, uh, you know, uh, Alfonso Cuaron, uh, Inuritu. Right. That it's like, it seems crazy now because of the reputation that Delon has, or at least the, the way we talk about him. But, like, he was one of those directors, and, like, I wonder if he'll... He does not seem optimistic about even getting movies funded at this point, but, right. like... Matias and Maxine came out of nowhere and just like showed up in a can lineup. So I I still think that he'll probably be making movies. I hope so. I root I'm rooting for him. And I know that sounds weird to, you know, talk about a person who doesn't seem all that sort of like, you know, cuddly of a person. Well, and I think you and I are on the same wavelength of, like, we want him to do that well because, like, we are two people who really, really responded to the movie Mommy in a way that it's like you always, like, it does enough to make you always kind of interested or rude in that filmmaker. Yeah, I agree. I think the fact that he and, and Matthias and Maxime, he's back in his own movie again is maybe not a direction I want for him. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like the more he can make his movies less about himself, which isn't to say that, like, Matthias and Maxime is about him, but, like, the more he's in his movie and it makes it harder to separate the himness from mm-hmm. the movie, I think the better. I'm more interested in that. I'd really like to see him direct a movie that is not his script. That would be very interesting. I think that would um, be very interesting. You know, because then it would become maybe, I'm sure he wouldn't just like direct whatever. He would direct a movie that he would connect with in a certain way, right, but it right. would maybe help uh, 
dissociate his fascinations from like or what we perceive as his fascinations from like the actual content he is and i hate that word um but help him develop these signatures that are that are less narrative driven mm -hmm. do you know what i mean that it doesn't have to every movie doesn't have to have this like fraught mother-son relationship that these mm -hmm. you know signatures of his can be more stylistic and more yeah because even matthias and maxime has the whole mother-son thing yeah. to yeah. it that i was like okay yeah yes i wanted to be sort of like gleefully dumping on this movie but it's like it does it brings me no joy to not like this movie the, I think the things to most gleefully dump on are the song cues and the Michael Gambon scene. <laughs> I mean, there is also, again, that that Tremblay-Portman argument scene is should be watched because it's just breathtakingly ill-conceived and bad and badly performed. And I, but again, but I mostly kind of like feel bad for Jacob Tremblay because that's sort of like going to be on his. I mean, it won't be on his reel, but, like, people will see that and just remember him for it. One thing I will say, and, like, I don't want to go into the full Portman of it all, Portman of it all, because we did it just a few weeks ago, but the way that she kind of comes out of this movie entirely unscathed, I think, speaks to how the tide has completely turned for her and that we respect her as an actress, even when she's making huge choices that like, yeah, the knives would have been out more for her when Agreed. there was a less favorable opinion of her. Oh, really quickly. This movie. I think you're totally right. And I think, I think we, we put Natalie Portman star vehicles in a different box than we do Natalie Portman ensemble things. And I think that's, to her benefit because i think she does well in the star vehicles and um so like good for her um we've talked about this movie um premiering at tiff in 2018 and i did create a small little game for you to play and i know we're like we've been going for a bit but this will be sort of a shortened version of our what did i call i had come up with a name for this game and now i've totally forgotten what i had said it's going to be but anyway the game where I give you three characters from other movies and you tell me what all those three actors were in together. One of these days I'll Fantastic. Re remember the name that I gave for it. All of we these came movies. We came up with a good one and I We did, and it's like it's lost in our text chain. Anyway, I should have written it down. Uh, all of the answers to this movie will be films that played the 2018 Toronto Film Festival. So they're all very recent and, uh, you know, festival y. So if you are ready. Right. We'll play this game and then we'll go right into the IMDb game. So we'll be okay. Games, let's do it. Games on games. All right. First one: King Henry the Fourth, Carmela Soprano, and Jean Meyerowitz. Uh, okay, so it's Edie Falco and uh, Elizabeth Marvell. It is the um, the Land of Steady Habits. Land of Steady Habits. King Henry the Fourth is Ben Mendelsohn in The King. Land of Steady Habits. My least favorite uh, Nicole Hall Center movie. Yeah, same, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Next one. Tinkerbell, Danny O'Neill, <laughs> and Johnny Cochran. Uh, Tinkerbell is Hook for Julia Roberts, so I'm guessing it is Ben is back. See, this is the version of the game where you can 
you you can game the system because you have probably a very good memory of everything that was at TIFF. Well, how can I forget Ben is back when it was the time that I almost actually ended your life? Um, <laughs> listeners in the theater saw Ben is back with Joseph Reed, fellow co-host, friend, um, enemy of the moment I am describing. Uh, he was a villain in the moment. He, uh, as soon as Lucas Hedges shows up, he leans over to me. I'm thinking because, like, we don't really talk in the times we've seen movies that it's going to be somewhat I'm not serious. A movie whatever talker. he has yeah. to say, uh, neither am I. Um, and he, uh, as soon as Lucas Hedges shows up, whispers to me, uh, "That's Ben." I did, and I, I literally had to stifle the impulse to slap you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good time. Yeah, Danny O'Neill, Lucas Hedges in Ladybird, uh, Johnny Cochran is Courtney B. Vance in uh, American Crime Story, O.J. Simpson. Okay, next one. Daisy Buchanan, oh, Robert Graysmith, and Gerald Ford. Uh, Gerald, uh, uh, Daisy, Daisy is Carrie Mulligan, Robert Graysmith is Jake Gyllenhaal. This is Wild Life. It's a wild life. It's a wild life. It's a wild life, kid. Yeah, Gerald Ford, I'm pretty sure, is like Bill Camp in, I want to say, Vice, maybe? Sure. All right. Uh, that movie is so great, but that moment where uh, Jake Gyllenhaal screams, boy, 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 it's a wild life, <laughs> is Amazing. absolutely um, uh, 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 bad. It's just bad. I think Everything I've, else about that movie is great. I think I've told this story before. It's kind of, it's a dumb story if I've told it twice, but whatever. Um, when we're sitting there... It's like the second movie. No, it was the first movie that year, right? That I saw at TIFF. And um, I've got my little notebook and it's pitch dark and I'd written, you know, uh, wildlife on the top. And I had taken a little photo of it to like my, do my like first TIFF movie of the year. And I took it and I put it up on Instagram. And then the movie happened. Call it wildfire? No, I called it wildlife. But then the movie happens and it's about wildfires. And metaphorically, you could, you know, call Carrie Mulligan's character, you know, wildfire character or whatever. And I'm like, is this movie called Wildfire? And I thought it was called Wildlife. Did I write that wrong? And then I'm like, I'm in the middle of this movie and I'm like literally fretting. I'm like, do I look like an idiot on social media now? Because I said it was called Wildlife. <laughs> and this movie is clearly called Wildfire because it's about fucking wildfires. And there's a metaphor about wildfires. And finally we got to that scene where he goes, it's Wildlife. And I got so relieved. I was just like, oh no, I'm right. Thank God. Stupid. All right, next one. Jay Gatsby, Ruth Fowler, and Renfield. Uh, that is um, Jay Gatsby is Redford. Ruth Fowler, I'm positive, is Sissy Spacek and in the bedroom. This is the old man and the gun. This is you're right, uh, Gatsby and uh, Ruth Fowler. Surprisingly lovely film. I really liked it. I really liked it. Um, David Lowry is a very good director. I like him a lot. Uh, also a deeply just like cool and nice person from the one time I interviewed him. Uh, any guesses on Renfield? Uh, it's, uh, oh, I know this. It's um, fucking Tom Waits. <laughs> Tom Waits from Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> All right. Next one is Elizabeth Swan, Fred Casely, and Petunia Dursley. Um, Fred Casely is Dominic West. From? Who's Fred Casely? My ex-boyfriend. Chicago. Correct. What was the third one? Petunia Dursley. 
Oh. Um, uh, Fiona Shaw. From? Harry Potter. Correct. Um, Elizabeth Swan, I know that. But what is this movie with Fiona Shaw? Oh, I feel like this might be embarrassing. No, like Fiona Shaw is a minor character in this. You, this is one where you've really got to get it from uh, the main Elizabeth Swan. Uh, yes, the actress playing Elizabeth Swan. Um, right, and that actor is also one of those people that I conflate with like five other inscrutable actors. Dominic West. Yes. Yeah. Dougree Scott. Yes. Um, what if I okay. said Elizabeth Bennett? Oh. Uh so it's um it's Kira Knightley. Yes. Did I see this movie at that tiff? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. I um, didn't see it till later. I didn't see it till I got it on a screener. Oh no, it is Colette. It's Colette. Yes, Elizabeth Swan is Keira Knightley's character in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yeah, I did not see that at that TIFF, because it opened, like, right after. It did, yes. All right, Uh, the next three characters are Kay, Queen Elizabeth II, and Ted Kennedy. Kay, Queen Elizabeth II, Ted Kennedy. Uh, uh, Helen Mirren is Queen Elizabeth II. Um, Kay is definitely familiar, but what would Helen Mirren have been at at that tiff? Um, it was definitely something that I was like, I don't care to see this. Um, what was the third name? Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy. How would that have been? Um, oh, is that the Chappaquiddick movie? Is it, um, uh, God, what's his name? He's so good in Mudbound. Um, everybody's good in Mudbound. Uh, I'm not going to get it from him being with Helen Mirren. I need to figure out who Kay is. Well, you also need to figure out who Queen Elizabeth II is because it's not Helen Mirren. Oh, it's not Helen Mirren. Okay. Um, is it Olivia Coleman? No, it's Claire Foy. Is it First Man? It's First Man. Kay is... Um, uh, fucking whatever Ryan Gosling movie. <laughs> it's Blade, uh, Blade Runner 2049. Oh, sure, sure, sure. That movie I don't like. That movie I love. Next one. Uh, Clary Starling, Herb Stemple, and Polly Bleeker. Uh, Polly Bleeker is Michael Sarah. Clary Starling is Jodie Foster. Uh, what was the middle name? Herb Stemple. Herb, cool. Um, Jodie Foster in a movie that was at TIFF that clearly I don't remember what it was. Could we do it for this podcast? We could do this movie for this podcast, yes. Wow, what am I forgetting? Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah, who was also at that uh, TIFF, maybe? No, it was the TIFF before with Molly's Game, where he plays... Not so uh, veiled. Uh, Toby Maguire. Maguire. Yeah, it was the year before for that. Um, I would say maybe re-examine your your rationales here. Is Jodie Foster like not the lead of the movie, or is it she not the Clary Starling? No one else has played Clary Starling. Your silence. Oh, Julianne Moore. 
Duh. Duh. Of course, I forgot our own episode for Hannibal. Yep. Uh, Okay, Julianne Moore and Michael Sarah wasn't Suburbicon, which was maybe not that. Suburbicon was also 2017, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um... Okay, what was she at that year? I probably would have seen it if she was in a movie there. Oh, it's Gloria Bell. It's Gloria Bell. Gloria I was Bell, waiting see, for I was it. Forgetting her the next year, Gloria Bell, which we saw behind um, one of the true ghouls of um, ghoulish Oscar blogger, punditry, yeah, who um, is maybe the actual devil and we, <laughs> we had an un, unspoken unacknowledged thing that we were going to enjoy the fuck out of that movie and hopefully annoy that um homophobe fat phobe racist we had a great time at that movie that's a great movie herb stemple of course is john Turturro in quiz show oh. all right two more uh novelty nation lemony snicket and young snow white well lemony snicket is jude law Young Snow White, I'm guessing, is either Lily Collins or Kristen Stewart. What was the first name? Novelty Nation. Aha. Mm, Jude Law. Am I right on Jude Law? You're right on Jude Law. Right. Okay. Uh, Jude Law, who is fantastic in The Nest, opposite the even more fantastic Carrie Coon. Nice. Uh, I'm stalling, so I'm just <laughs> plugging The Nest. Uh, oh, God. Okay, Jude Law. I'm going to guess that it's probably Lily Collins. Think even younger Snow White. Even younger Snow White. Like, if the character is named Young Snow White in the cast. Young Snow White, right, right, right. I don't remember who that might have been. I didn't either, to be fair. Okay. I thought you'd get Novelty Nation just right off the bat. I guess I didn't. Jude, Locks, uh, Jude, Jude, Jude Law. What was he in at that tiff? I don't know what Novelty Nation is. I'm Imagine sorry. Novelty Nation having a conversation with Sister Husband. Sister Husband? Yes. So this person is it um it's a is it a cult movie? No. Or? We've talked about a, an actress we love who has a character named Sister Husband in a thing. Imagine that conversation taking place in a big box store. Like a notorious Walmart chain big box store. Yeah. Target. Nope. You were right about the first time. Walmart. Oh, is it um, uh, Where the Heart Is? Is it Natalie Portman? It is. Also, Natalie Portman at this TIFF was Fox Lux. Fox Lux. Natalie Portman, Jude Law, the teaming of our generation. Uh, yeah. Young Snow White and Snow White and the Huntsman was played by Raffi Cassidy. Sure. Crazily enough. Sure. All right. Last one, all for you. Katerine Vauban, Carrie White, and Patricia Whitmore. Okay. Um, Patricia Whitmore sounds familiar. The first one doesn't. Carrie White could actually be a couple of things. I'm going to guess that it is um, Chloe Grace Moretz. <laughs> is this... Is this... Uh, 
um, my beloved Isabella Pear, um, Chloe Grace Moretz movie. Why is the why is the name? Is it Greta? It's Greta. But I'm not. I love Greta I'm not so much. letting you get out of this without telling me who Katerine Vauban is. Uh, Katerine Vauban is I Heart Huckabees. Is Isabella Pear and I Heart Huckabees and Patricia Whitmore. I was trying to f- so much in vain to find a third name. It's Micah Monroe in the Independence Day sequel. <laughs> Woof! Justice for Mae Whitman. We, that makes you the first person to. Um, mentioned the independence day sequel since it was in theaters i know that's true all right anything else about the death and life of john f donovan before we move on to the imdb game uh if any of our listeners were somehow in the industry and saw the four-hour cut um absolutely (laughs) uh talk to us yeah uh i did write down one line of dialogue from that uh jacob trombley outburst scene that i think is so bad is he yells at natalie portman and he says and your small dreams and your smallness which just doesn't seem like it's like you're small jacob trombley you are literally not tall you are small too small to be yelling at someone with that kind of vocabulary yes all right uh care to explain to our listeners what the imdb game is okay so we end our episodes with the imdb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that imdb says they are most known for many of those titles are television or voiceover work we'll mention that up front after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles release years as a clue if that's not enough it just becomes a free-for-all of hints um i am hanging by a moment joseph (laughs) to see what you are going to challenge me with all right i am going to challenge you since you've made it implicit that you would like to be challenged first that is all good with me um i obviously went down the xavier dolan route he is not only an a writer director he's an actor as well he has appeared in a small handful of american films one of which was the i wish it had been better than it was film bad times at the el royale Oh, right. When he showed up uh, taunting Cynthia Erivo was when I fully um, lost all goodwill. (laughs) I like that movie significantly less than most people. I kind of. I didn't think people liked it to begin with. I think most people. I know a lot of people that think it's great. Really? I hate it. Oh, I wanted it to be so good and it just wasn't. Cynthia's amazing. Cynthia's fantastic. Stop casting John Hammond movies. Okay. Um. (laughs) <laughs> but somebody else who was in that movie was the great Jeff Bridges. So I'm going to have you give me Jeff Bridges is known for. Papa Jeffrey. Um, I'm going to say True Grit. Uh, wrong. One strike. Damn. <laughs> um, uh, ooh, okay. Well, I immediately thought that like no one watches Crazy Heart anymore. So his Oscar would not be in there. But I th- True Grit isn't in there, which I feel like True Grit has been in there for other people, but maybe I'm crazy. Um, I'm just going to say Crazy Heart to hedge my bets. If I get my first two guesses wrong, I'm going to um, never resurface. Well, fear not, because Crazy Heart is one of them. Cool. Good. Um, Crazy Heart should not be one of them, (laughs) I will say. Um, People's Oscars tend to, it's tough, tough for those to miss, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. There was somebody recently. I forget who it was. Yeah. There was somebody recently. Anyway. Um, 
the dude the dude's got to be there big lebowski correct the big lebowski awesome uh uh he's in the mcu i'm gonna say iron man incorrect good guess but incorrect so that's oh two strikes God. maybe maybe the first iron man is just too old people forget that jeff bridges is in that movie i think both of those things are possible all right your years for the two movies that you are missing are 2016 and 1984 oh wow um 2016 huh oh god it, is this a best picture nominee yes do I hate this movie? Do you? You might. I like Is it. Is it Hell or High Water? Yeah. I hate that movie. I really like that movie. I think it's good. I thought it was terrible. Um, One more. Uh, 1984. Okay. 84. Um, Is he like second build in this? No, I'm pretty sure he's first build in this. Okay, so it's not one of the weird thrillers like uh, The Morning After. Um is the morning after a thriller? It's like I thought it was like a psychological thriller. It, they all kind of blur together with like it's Jeff Bridges, a famous actress, and someone has died. Oh, it's it's all I knew about the the morning after. Yeah, it's a crime mystery romance. All I knew about the morning after was that Jane Fonda got a nomination for it. I didn't even know it was a Sydney Lumet movie. I always assumed that it was a romance. Okay. That just you know, went. there's got to be one. There's there's got to be a morning after. Yeah, that's true. Um, How dare you? Okay, so yeah, 84. not that movie. Eighty four. He's the lead. He is the lead. Mm. Is it Tron? No. Although I mm. bet you that was right around that time. Let's see, Jeff Bridges, Tron. Tron's eighty two. Ah, okay. Um. Jesus. Ugh. It's directed know, by a famous director working outside of his traditional genre. In that it is a genre director doing a drama or the other way around? It's a genre director doing... A drama slash some other genre that isn't quite his genre. It's like a lateral off. Oh, so it's like, um, I mean, at this era, it wouldn't be Spielberg. Spielberg was already, though I guess Spielberg was still pretty much doing genre movies now. I'm pretty sure in 84, Spielberg is directing, is working on E.T. The Color Purple. Isn't that like 87? Color Purple's 85, E.T. is 82. Oh, never mind. Uh, Okay, so is one of these horror, like it's someone who normally does like science fiction doing a horror movie? Other way around. Okay. Um, Horror doing... Science fiction? Yeah. But like oh, science okay. fiction science fiction mashed with like another like um a sort of softer genre. Oh, like a sci-fi comedy. So, sort of. Not really. Uh, I just need to figure it out like what science fiction movie Bridges was in. Um Besides Tron. Is Besides Tron. Is it a Starman? It is Starman, a 
sci-fi seen Starman. Sci-fi romance from director John Carpenter. Oh, see, I thought it was more of just like a straight science fiction. I didn't realize it was a romance. Sci-fi romance with Jeff Bridges as an alien and uh, Karen Allen is the lady. Sure. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Good job. That's a very interesting known for, I think, for Jeff Bridges. I mean, that he's is an not actor the known for that he deserves. <laughs> Though I've never seen Starman. Maybe, maybe I would love. Starman. He got Oscar nominated for it. I'll say that. He did. He did. Okay, so for you, I also went down the Xavier Dolan route. I went to his first star-studded cast of It's Only the End of the World. Oh, Who did I pick? I picked for you, Miss Leia Sadu. I knew you were going to give me someone French. Okay. <sighs> Leia Sadu. Blue is the warmest color. Yes. Um... The Grand Budapest Hotel. No. Oh, boy. Here we go. She has to be maybe one of the first people um, in Grand Budapest who I have not seen show up on here. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, The Lobster? Yes, The Lobster. Okay. Now I'm trying to remember if she's in the upcoming Bond movie or was in the last Bond movie. And I think it's she's in the upcoming Bond movie. So that doesn't help me out at all. Or maybe she's in both. Is it worth just having a guess? <laughs> what else do I know for sure that Leia Sidhu is in? She's always like, ever since uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, it's like, let's cast Leia Sidhu as like, the somewhat mysterious, like, an- semi-antagonist, but, like, her motives are shrouded or whatever. Yes. We need someone to be mysterious in French. Yes. Wait, is, she's, is she in The Fifth Estate, or am I misremembering that movie? Uh, let me look at... Uh, Clearly not one of her known for. Fifth Estate, which I we've done an episode on. We did, on, but I but, remember uh, so little about it. I remember nothing of the movie or the episode. Yeah. Um, uh, she's not, I don't think she's in it, but it's not in her known for, so yeah. I won't count it against you. Okay. I think you should, but you know, you play. All right. I'll count it against count you. Count it against then. me. Give me the, give me the years. All right. So your years are 2011 and 2015. Is she inspector? She's inspector. <laughs> Fuck off. She's the love interest of Spectre, dude. Is she also in the new one? Yes. Okay. I thought I saw her. No, I'm guessing she's gonna die. First of all, how dare you assume that I remember shit about Spectre? Like Spectre's terrible. That piece of crap movie. God, Spectre's dreadful. Um, yeah, I'm guessing she's gonna die at the beginning. Yeah, that that seems that's the or be kidnapped. That's the uh, Franca Potente uh, corollary to that, right? The Michelle Monaghan core is, is she the Michelle Monaghan who gets kidnapped, or is she the Franca Potente who gets killed? That is the question. At the beginning of No Time to Die. I think she's either going to get kidnapped and then get killed or she's just going to get killed outright. What? She seems to be in a lot of the second trailer for No Time to Die, which we will not see for another Forever. six months at least. I haven't seen the second trailer yet. What happens to Ava Green in Casino Royale? Does she die at the end of that or does she show up? She dies at the end. Right. And then she he's like the avenging her death for like the next two movies or whatever. Right, right, right. Right. Okay. 2011 so before blue is the warmest color yeah great it is not french 
It is not French. That's interesting. It takes place in France, but it is not French. 2011 movie, not French, but takes place in France. Is it a movie I've seen? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. We've talked shit about this movie before. Interesting. It's a movie that was, like, so beloved, and I think... I know definitely for me, but for you, even at the time, like, that love was lost on us. Is she in The Artist? No. Uh, Though that is very true for that movie, too. Yeah. All of those things, because it also takes place in France, right? Yes. Shot in America, though. Right. Okay. This is a Best Picture nominee. From 2011. Yes. Hugo? No. Well, you wouldn't be saying that that it, that I talk shit about it if it was about Warhorse. Yeah, she plays. Um, she doesn't play the horse, but she plays the war. She's the entire war. Wow, yeah, she's so Leo versatile. Is the war. It's the titular role. Okay, so wait. So twenty eleven. Now I've just got to go see how many of the twenty eleven Oscar nominees. So, um, artist, Warhorse, Hugo. Moneyball, not in France. Descendants, not in France. France is perhaps in the title. There is oh, a it's city Midnight in Paris. I it don't like that movie. In Paris. It's except, not a good movie. Except for I don't know why people loved that movie at the time. There are three people who are good in that movie. Maybe three and a half. Corey Stoll, Corey Stoll. fantastic as Hemingway. I loved Tom Hiddleston and, and Alison Pill as the Fitzgeralds. And I'm interested in what Adrian Brody's throwing out there as Dolly. <laughs> Dolly! But other than that... Kathy Bates is even a little fun in that movie. But like who the is movie she? Itself. She's Gertrude Stein, right? Yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah, the oh, actual the... meat of that movie, all the periphery in that movie is fun. But the actual central part of that movie, poor Rachel McAdams, gets, of all the like yeah. hateful Woody Allen female characters, like that's she's up there. Absolutely the most. Brutal. All right, I'm glad I thank you for the heavy hints on that last one, but I would not have remembered Lea Seydoux in Midnight in Paris at all. It's because she is on the fringes of the movie, but she, I don't think, plays anyone fun. Like, she's not yeah. a cameo. She's not if I remember Carla correctly. Bruni or whatever the fuck. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, fun, good times, a good time had by all. I'm... I hope Xavier Dolan makes another movie with American actors in English that is good. That's what I want for him. Who do you want to see in a Xavier Dolan movie? Oh, that's a question. I mean, Jessica Chastain, for real now this time? Um, uh, yeah, I think that's probably my answer. I feel like Justice Justice demands that... Yeah. I don't know. I feel like... There, I mean, I don't know. Tony Collette. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I kind of wish that he would because, like, just actress he introduced it out. us as as American audiences to like Andor Val, who's so incredible in Mommy that I'm like, I kind of want to see him work if he's going to work with American actresses again. Someone who like deserves their due, like Elizabeth Marvell. Yes. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. Rather than working with huge stars. Although God, Elizabeth Marvel is always so interior and sort of like. I don't know if I've ever seen her play that big, but like, that'd be fun. That'd be interesting. I'm on this kick where I want Laura Linney to just work with the most like experimental and cool directors possible. So like, I always want Laura Linney when I have fantasy casting these days. Listen, we, we want the best for Laura Linney. Also weirdly, Melissa McCarthy. (laughs) 
<laughs> Melissa McCarthy, <laughs> Melissa McCarthy and, and it's a lawn movie. movie. Yeah. Well, make it happen. Glad one of us had a weed brownie this morning. <laughs> Shut up. All right, that's our episode. If you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this at oscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me hanging by a moment on twitter.com at Chris V file. That's F E I L also on letterboxd.app.com uh, under the same name. Dot app.com. My God. Okay. I don't know. I had to make it fun. I had to make it fun. <laughs> I'm on. To figure it out. Yeah. You get it. You, you got it. You nailed it. All right. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am hopefully still keeping up with my pledge to watch one uh, scary movie every day for October because it's- Well, my- you got this one in there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mark that one down. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and David Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts five star review in particular really helps us out with apple podcast visibility so please break out your finest green felt pens and write us something nice won't you that's all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz i'm falling every